Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Alright, are we ready to start talking about our cast? Yes, let's okay. do it. Starting with our title character, Peter Pan, played by Bobby Driscoll. Bobby Driscoll, and we've talked about him a few times on Monoreal Radio. I mean, I think my favorite role of his was in Treasure Island. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very, very close second. Uh, he He's absolutely incredible in this film. I think he played the character very well. Um, I think that the narcissism is there. I think that the childish wonder is there. I think that the selfishness is there, but not to the point where he's not endearing. And I think that the the sad reality of the way that Bobby Driscoll's life very tragically ended very young, uh, I, I think it kind of, you know, and I don't say this disrespectfully, at least I try not to, it kind of adds to the lore that is Peter Pan. And I and it, it kind of adds to what we talked about earlier is the poltergeist cursed and you know what what ended up happening to so many members of that cast tragically untimely. I mean this they're they're almost hand in hand, right? And then for Steven Spielberg to eventually get his hands on hooked the way he had his hands on poltergeist. Maybe this is just Steven Spielberg's <laughs> fault, but I, I think that you're right say the, is the king of Hollywood. Well, they, the parallels though are are really incredible. Yeah, it's, I mean, is it a little bit of life imitating art, imitating life? It's, it's, it's very creepy. Um, I mean, Bobby Driscoll, it, it's not just Treasure Island. He was one of the first actors, child or otherwise, to have the Disney deal because he was in that. He was in Song of the South and he was in what I grew up with him in was so dear to my heart. And he actually won a um uh i think it was a, a juvenile, juvenile yeah. academy award yeah i couldn't think of the phrasing where the word juvenile went in there uh but it was something that they had created for shirley temple and then they started giving it to other child actors and he received the award for his performance and so dear to my heart um and then this was one of his last roles with disney and that's where tragedy really struck is because he had a very difficult time making that transition from child actor into adult actor and he was very much attracted to the fame and that's what you know made this so hard for him and it's what led him to turn to drugs and you know it's it's just almost beautifully tragic that this was one of his last major roles because he is the the same way that J.M. Barry did this character for his brother is like now Bobby Driscoll is immortalized in this role. And even Peter is drawn to look like him. Bobby didn't just do the live action reference for the animators. That, that face is all Bobby with those eyebrows. Like I know Will Poulter is now becoming known for his eyebrows, but like Bobby Driscoll did it first. And it's, it's absolutely tragic what happened to him. And, um, you know, he, he, Passed at age 31. He was married, divorced. He did have three children that he left behind. Um, he was estranged from his parents. He was completely broke. Uh, and he had a heart attack that was induced by heroin. And the way that they found him um, 
his I, I really don't want to bring down the room, but his body was discovered um, in an abandoned building. And it it's just so tragic that Peter Pan did not get to be celebrated in death that he was put in an unmarked grave and they found him with the help of the Walt Disney Company because his father was sick and his mother uh, reached out to Disney to try and track him down and and that's how they found out that he had passed. Um, It is incredibly tragic and, you know, we said almost everybody uh, that had a hand in in the story of Peter Pan, especially related to the title character, did have some kind of horrible tragedy. Yeah, you can certainly imagine, you know, a young-ish Walt Disney seeing Bobby Driscoll on set and saying, "That's my Peter Pan," right? And so it 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 is. I I I don't know if it, if it's the case that that Disney handpicked him, but I can almost guarantee that that is the case, right? And so just just knowing that and and hearing the way that he emotes. Uh, throughout the film. And then, like I said, even some of the lines that he delivers that are still present today in the parks, uh, in other, you know, Disney franchises, um, I don't think anybody else could have played it. And, you know, to know that he, at this point, had he lived, right? You have so many conventions that get these Disney legends, right? And there's so much respect for these Disney legends where they they get a second life and they get a second career out of this. And Bobby Driscoll, because he had so many roles that he played for this company that became influential, right? And I mean, they, the news media didn't report on his death until 1971. Nobody knew that he was gone. He's in a pauper's grave and no one knows that it's him. It's they were doing press. I think it was an anniversary of song of the South of all things. That's when they were three years after he died. That's when it starts to pick up. And I think that's why a lot of people kind of wondered, was it in poor taste to do sweet Pete in the rescue Rangers reboot? And I, you know, in retrospect, they, they admitted that they did not know that this is what happened to Bobby Driscoll. So I give them a pass. I don't think that it was meant to be disrespectful. I think the bigger picture, though, is that they made the film. Disney Green lit a script, and no one put the pieces together because nobody knew that this happened. So it's amazing that all of these years later, right, almost 60 years late, 55 years after this man died, to this day, people still don't know that this is what happened to him. Right. And I, I agree with you. I don't know that conventions would have given him that amazing second act. I think it honestly would have happened um, in the 70s when when Ron Miller was producing all these films. I could very easily see Bobby Driscoll playing the absent-minded professor I think or you know we just did our our run of um computer war tennis shoes I would absolutely see him maybe not as a lead but as one of the teachers or something I I think he absolutely would have gotten more work through Disney I'm just glad that Walt was not around to see this happen I think this would have broken him absolutely because he is so invested in this character I I almost wonder, too, like, if Walt, you know, I I don't think that they were still in touch, but, like, had Walt not gotten sick, 
if he would have helped him, I'd certainly like to believe that he would have. But, I mean, he wasn't even in touch with his own parents. So I certainly don't think that they had much of a relationship later on. Yeah, so many things, you know, if, if, if Walt Disney hadn't passed away, you think of the things that would have, you know, matriculated out of, out of just him being alive and having that creative mind in the world. Um, Bobby Driscoll certainly being one of them. I mean, you, you saw how protective Walt Disney was over Annette Funicello, right? Mm. But the other thing was Annette Funicello, when she was doing the Frankie and Annette films, she was very conservative with the bathing suits that she would wear. And she's well documented in saying, I do not want to disrespect Mr. Disney. So I, you know, I, I think that she transitioned obviously a lot easier than Bobby Driscoll did. Bobby Driscoll was typecast. Annette Funicello could have very easily been typecast. She wasn't at all. Um, not until she started doing the beach films, right? Right. Um, with, oddly enough. But yeah, I, there, I think there would have been a future there, to your point. Um, especially because Disney, we know they like to dip their toe back into the same pool and bring the same actors back years later. Talking about bringing the same uh, talent back, Catherine Beaumont, you know, just two years after she voices Alice in Alice in Wonderland, she's back as Wendy. You could not have two more different characters. Until you recognize her name in the opening credits, I never in my life knew that Wendy and Alice were the same actresses. Really? I never knew. And we had Alice in Wonderland. That was a VHS that we wore out, much like Cinderella and the Jungle Book. It was probably those three that we watched the most often, the most frequent. Um, but yeah, I, uh, until recently, I had no idea that she was in both films. And, and frankly, uh, it, it's, it's a phenomenal talent. You know, it's, it's a compliment to her phenomenal talent that w- within only two years, she could play two completely different characters. I think it's also worth noting that, um, she did for both Alice and for this, she was the, um, the, the model reference for it. So, um, you know, she had to do a bunch of physical performance on the harness and, you know, they they had to simulate her flying so that they could draw it. Um, so she was very much involved more than just the voice performance. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, that she she sort of like in as a younger performer was a little bit more verbose and sort of, you know, like as Alice is, is very excitable, very sort of loud and, you know, has has a lot of, of kind of range. And then when two years later as Wendy, a little bit more reserved and a little bit more, you know, controlled in the way that she speaks. I think it's, I think it's cool to see the growth of that. There is a line early on that she says, and I, and I believe she says curious, just the word curious. And I immediately was like, that's Alice. Mm -hmm. Isn't that Alice? And then I pulled up my phone. Yep. Oh, sure enough. That is, that is Alice, you know? Um, But to to Sean's point, no way would you have known that, uh, you know, unless, unless those little nuances or like we do know Disney films so well. Right. And so, um, I think it, it shows a great actress kind of making her way through through Disney. And, uh, you know, her and um, uh, who placed me, same thing, right, was uh, the White Rabbit two years earlier. So they worked together um, on Alice in Wonderland and, you know, bringing them back to, to do more work. And I think that they just do a great job in this movie. It's not just the actress that they were recycling, though. I'm 99% sure when Wendy says, but how do we get to Neverland? This is what always put it together in my mind. She does this thing with her hand and she listeners, you can't see I'm like circling my hand 
And and I believe that is recycled from Alice. Aside from the fact that the the structure of their face looks very similar, I do think that that is recycled animation. Hans Conried plays Captain Hook. He was also the voice of Mr. Darling. Um, what's incredible about him in this film is we talk about how you have Catherine Beaumont in a two-year span going from whimsy to reserved. This actor is able to do it and do, have such a nuanced performance in the same exact film. Like, the only time you ever get him worked up as Mr. Darling is when he gets fed up. It's that organized chaos, right? Where, poor Nana, poor Nana, because he's just so <laughs> fed up. And he's so upset, like, nobody cares about him. But to have somebody that is so grounded versus somebody that is so flamboyant and at times completely unhinged to do both of them in the same film. Uh, and again, to not put it together, I talked about Mr. Parrish earlier in Jumanji. You know it's the same character because it's live action. So you're seeing him twice. There is nothing about Mr. Darling and Captain Hook that bear any resemblance to each other. I'm surprised that they even drew them at a similar height. But you're right. Captain Hook is very thin and lanky and Mr. Darling is very pompous. But just as far as the differentiating differentiating the voice performance it's so remarkable how he's able to give Mr. Darling like a more stuffy quality that you can actually hear it's not just in the in the dialogue that is written you can hear it in the performance um how drastically different the two of them are um do we want to focus on Mr. Darling now or do we want to do we want to hit on hook too well we'll talk about both of them okay um yeah, just because uh, Hook is such a, he's an incredible character. And I feel like we did really break down the nitty gritty. But um, I I just, he's, to me, he's the best villain of all time. I mean, Scar is probably still my favorite. But as far as having a perfectly balanced villain that is, evil for evil's sake but he's also motivated and and the way that they're able to balance that with the comedy I mean like I've said it about Cruella she's great because she's just unhinged and she's doing this horrible thing and she's going after puppies but when you put that up against Hook I mean he's still ready to bomb a child like is there a more diabolical villain I think you could argue that Scar is probably the only other one because of what he does to Mufasa and to Simba throughout the course of the the Lion King but um yeah I I do think that Captain Hook may be more evil it's interesting because I think I think he may be more relatable because I think that you see more of a range of emotions and see him in different scenarios that you can relate to you know somebody watching the film uh, more so than than any other villain, I think. I mean, you see him vulnerable with TikTok Croc. See him like even even seeing him like sick. You know, when he's in the in the scene where uh, Smee puts the thermometer in his mouth, uh, you see him. You know, kind of plotting and kind of that manipulative. Uh, whenever he's working with Tinkerbell, uh, you know, you see him being really cunning with the bomb, not laying a hand or hook on Peter Pan. And then um, I think he's just a a, a such a good uh, foil to what the embodiment of the character of Peter is. So 
I also think that just an extension of that, that Mr. Darling is a great sort of, you know, mirror of what Hook is. Obviously, that's why they're played by the same actor. But to Sean's point, uh, the, the fact that they animated them so differently and they have such different personalities, kind of body types, um, I never knew growing up that they were the same voice actor at all. Uh, you know, I had no idea. Um, and, you know, it was only later whenever you start diving into who is what and what they could represent that you kind of see that that's the same character. Um, so I, I think great, great job all around by uh, the animators as well as the, the voice actors to bring these characters to life. One more thing I do want to mention about the animation here, um, because we talked about Frank and Ollie doing Hook and Smee. Um, and just how incredible it was, you know, where Milk Call had the challenge of um, making making Peter fly or float. Um, I think that you also had a challenge with Captain Hook only having one hand because you're you're reducing what you can animate and and what makes him move. Um, so I just love how they did that here. And what I also realized um, is how they do balance out that character by they almost switch him back and forth and it it wasn't something that occurred to me until we were really talking about it and breaking it down is when he does you know smee get my coat get my hat when he does put on the coat and the hat that's when you see the really evil villainous pirate because that's when he's doing his sword fighting that's when he's delivering the bomb versus what really brought about that idea was when you mentioned um when he when he's sick with the thermometer in his mouth, I feel like he's always more the bumbling fool without his full costume on. I think to the point that you made before, low key, Hook probably is the greatest Disney villain of all time. Because he is by far, especially as you get older, I think he's the most relatable. Cruella DeVille, nobody can relate to Cruella DeVille. Because nobody's out there trying to skin and kill a hundred puppies to make clothing out of it. You hope. Maleficent. None of us are going to turn into a dragon. Right? At least, well, somebody might. It's not me. I don't know anybody that's going to do it. <laughs> Scar? Jealousy? Envy? Power hungry? Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Kill your brother to do it? Very few of us are, are willing to take it to that extreme. I think that everybody can relate to Captain Hook. We're all we're all running from time and we're all going to lose that battle. Yes. Right? There is a frustration and a jealousy and an enviness that comes with being the adult in the room. Because I think that you look back on yourself as a child where you could not wait to grow up and you wish that you could slap some sense into yourself. And all and 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 the frustrating thing about it is that when you were a kid and all you wanted to be was a grown-up, all the grown-ups well, grown-ups told you, Don't rush this, don't rush and it's the only thing that you wanted. And now that we're here, at this point, there is a part of you, every adult has this, where you're jealous. And where you're envious and where you're frustrated that you didn't appreciate what you had as a kid. Now, some of us, like the three of us that are having this conversation, either move closer to the magic or worked for the magic because it, that that's how you take it back. 
I think that he truly is the most relatable character out there because ultimately at the end of the day, he does these heinous things, but he doesn't accomplish any of them, right? So like he doesn't kill his brother. You know, like he and he and he lives at the end of the film running from time. Yeah. Running into that great beyond. It's not until Hook that we see how it plays out for him. Right. So I think that he has to be the greatest villain of all time. I would certainly agree with that. I'm I mean, I'm not surprised because this would have been far too dark, but it would be interesting to really live in a world where they lean into it a lot more. And it's not just his hand that's fed to the crocodile and the croc keeps getting pieces of him because, you know, you're getting closer and closer to your mortality. I think you can also say just by who has played Captain Hook, whenever they have another reboot, it's always the star or a star in the known quantity of that film is typically the character or the actor who plays Captain Hook, right? Um, now, Hook itself, hey, they named the movie after him, but Dustin Hoffman it, at that time and age was just, you know, a superstar. Uh, the cast is incredible in that movie, and we can do a whole other four hours on on that film alone. But then, you know, when they had the the live version, the live on TV version, it was Christopher Walken. Uh, this last one, it was Jude Law, you know? So it's, it is always the character that is probably the most difficult to play, but that you need a skilled actor in that role so that you can relate to that character. Absolutely. And if you think about it, when you cast that character, that actor is the known entity, with the exception of Hook. With the exception of Hook, because you have Robin Williams and you have uh, Julia Roberts. You know, the, the star power of those three were were pretty much equal. But in no other version of this story is there an equal to the actor who plays Captain Hook. Not in any one. Moving on, Bill Thompson plays Mr. Smee. And you mentioned before, you know, a couple of years earlier, he's playing the White Rabbit. Uh, comic relief is there. He's a good foil to Hook. Uh, he's a good first mate to Hook. Um, they have an outstanding relationship, and I love how he's a bumbling fool that just blindly follows Hook, but he's still endearing. You still love him for what he is. I love the yin and the yang of it all and how they balance each other out because even though Hook is ordering him around and he relies on Smee so much, I, I think Smee, it, it is just a very symbiotic relationship because Smee does need orders, but at the same time, like he does need to care for Hook. He needs to function. And even though he is the first mate, even though he is the right hand, he's the second in command. Um, he is his equal because there is no hook without Mr. Smee. Yeah. There's an adoration there that I really, that I love. And I, I love seeing kind of that, the, the, uh, how Smee looks at hook and still wants to like care for him when he's sick. He's the one, you know, putting the, the hot water on his feet and he's the one who's giving him a shave and he's, you know, he's, he's always there. He's putting on his jacket for him. So it, it's, it, it's neat to see. And, and I think Smee's just a, a great sidekick, a great side character um, to support the, the, the wondrous character that is Captain Hook. I really like, and I'm, I'm wondering if this is something that came out of 
the two of them, the pair of them being uh, animated by Frank and Ollie and how those two just managed to insert and project their own friendship into all of the characters that they did. I love that Smee wasn't just the comic relief sidekick, but they really did become a comedy duo. Paul Collins plays John, the middle child. Uh, And it actually says here that he is eight years old. Okay. Now, perhaps it's because of the way that he carries himself. Perhaps it's, it's the way that he's drawn. I never would have guessed that he's eight years old. No. Uh, I, I, and I guess that means that that would put Wendy closer to like the age of 12, right? I never would have put John at only being eight years old. Same. Uh, I, I mean, I think, I think that uh, Paul Collins does an, ap- an absolute spectacular job with the character. I think John is a great character. Um, do they play him a little bit too polished? A little, perhaps, perhaps they could have. I don't want to say dumb him down, and I don't want to say water him down, but perhaps they could have given him a little bit more whimsy. Um, because because you have enough of it with Michael, but Michael being so much younger, I don't think you necessarily needed somebody to ground it because that's Wendy's role, right? So, uh, perhaps all of that to be said, it it it, it all kind of plays into why we assume he's a lot older than he is. So I actually love that they play John that way because I think that he 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 is his make believe is being a grown up, and so that's why he wants mm. to be a pirate. He wants to have the top hat and the you know and be polished and be you know basically a go to work and and be a you know a man and that is his make believe world. He's just not there yet. So I I, I kind of love that you know the the way that he is playing and the way that he shows his imagination is by imagining himself as an adult. Whereas, you know, somebody like Michael is like, I want to be an Indian brave. And that doesn't necessarily mean adult, but when you say pirate, that is, you are, you know, the embodiment of an adult. So I, I, I think it's kind of, I think it's kind of cool that you have, you know, Wendy who is about to be an adult, but doesn't want to quite be there. You have John, the middle child, who wants to be an adult, but is definitely not there. And then you've got Michael, who's still imagination is growing and still wants to be all the fantastic things. Um, so I, I, I tend to, to see John as that kind of piece of the puzzle when it comes to those three characters. No, it's true. It, they really do represent each of those different stages of I don't want to grow up. And, and you believe that more the older you get the closer you become to adulthood and John is still right on that cut. Like for Michael, he's still too young, but John is still right on that cusp where he's young enough to, to want to throw it all away, so to speak, to rush adulthood. Um, And I'm really glad you bring that up because until you said that, I really did think that he wasn't as fully developed as the rest of the characters because, you know, you know him as the very, analytical scientific um the serious one basically um even though he is playing pretend with michael and even though he does want to join up with the pirates i still always associated him as a more serious character um but i i didn't really consider him having that full of an arc because everything is i i shall strive to i still shall strive to but i think that does play into his age is that he 
is still too young. He's just not there yet. And he doesn't, he's not in the same position as Wendy where she has to make that decision of I'm going to accept this. Tommy Lusk plays Michael, who is portrayed as being a child of the age of four. Again, I wouldn't have put him quite that young. I would have put him more like six or seven. Oh, um, I would have put him younger in that in that little onesie. Dragging um, the teddy bear around? Yeah, I'm thinking like three. But he's cute. He's fun. He's endearing. He's everything that you want in a child that's going to Neverland. What I'm really happy about is that they did not make him the comic relief. Or him the one that put everybody else in peril. I'm glad that he was able to stick with John and the older boys and hold his own without using him as a plot device. Yeah. I, I like that. He also kind of has a sub character with Mr. Bear and you see Mr. Bear, you know, coming into play in multiple different ways. It's also kind of his identifier, right? That, that onesie, that pink onesie absolutely is part of that. But the fact that he also has this kind of artifact that, that that's with him uh, gives him a little bit more weight and a little bit more kind of, you know, shape to the character. It's also interesting that you have all of the all of his siblings and his parents. We live in London, right? They all have British accents, except for <laughs> Michael. It's it's the Jim Hawkins thing again. Again, going back to Bobby Driscoll. It's the Jim Hawkins thing again. I don't know where he lost the accent, but somewhere in there he has lost the accent. Uh, Heather Angel plays Mary Darling. And she doesn't play a tremendous role in the film other than she is the more calm parent. She's the one that does encourage the children in their imagination. That's all well and good. But for 1953, I think this is the first time that you have both Disney parents in a film. And to me, if that's the case, and I need to fact check that. But if that, if that is it, this character means an awful lot more to the Disney history than anybody's going to give her credit for. Fair. Fair. And I also, yeah, I I also like that she's the one holding it down, being softer with Wendy, telling her, you know, that she doesn't have to grow up yet, that she also believes in Peter Pan, because I feel like in other stories of this ilk, or where it is, the mother that's the single parent, they are the one encouraging the daughter to grow up and you know or you have to go to finishing school or, or you have to mature and become a woman and I like that that's not preached through her and I, I also yeah. like that she openly defies Mr. Darling yeah yeah she she is exactly what you you need as the grounding agent of what a mother is in this story and so I think that she you know she she does that perfectly to your point Jackie her, her kind of foil being a foil to Mr. Darling and kind of being the like kind of voice of reason. Um, whereas Mr. Darling is the extreme, you know, extreme adult and, and strictness. She's kind of that in between and that soft sort of landing spot between the two of them. I do believe that you're right, Sean, about this being the first one where there is a, f where both parents are present, where it is a full family. Um, but I'm only realizing now how much you need both of them, because obviously we talked about how Mr. Darling is the parallel for or the embodiment of Captain Hook and vice versa. You also need a mother because 
that's what Wendy's role is supposed to be when Peter takes her to Neverland. So we need to know that Wendy knows how to do this. Obviously, if they had killed the mother off, she's not going to understand what it's like. She could be that mother to John and Michael, but she's not going to fully understand it. And then you're also going to totally lose her song, Your Mother and Mine, um, which we're about to get into the music here. But um, if you don't see Wendy's mother on screen, you're going to lose a lot of her character and a lot of her motivation. Um, So you absolutely need both parents in this case. Um, Before we move on to the music, though, there is one member of the cast that we do have to call attention to and that's margaret carey i'm so glad you brought it up because if you didn't i was just about to um she is our tinkerbell she was the model reference for tinkerbell she did the iconic um standing on the mirror um and looking at her reflection and measuring the width of her hips that's something that definitely well it's relatable but i hate seeing it on screen like this is not what we should be projecting onto younger females, especially like to see an animated character do it and that they went out of their way to animate that sequence. It's just, it's, it's cringy and we don't need it. I I couldn't tell if they were doing that for that reason, or if this is just one of those instances where maybe this is one of the first times, because you don't see mirrors. I don't think we see any other mirrors in Neverland. If this is maybe one of the first times that Tinkerbell's actually seen what she looks like. I mean, it definitely plays to Tink's vanity. I think that's a part of the character, but I just wish we didn't have her actually measuring her hips. And, and, putting that in front of children and making them think that that's what they're supposed to do. It's what they're going to do anyway, but like don't make it acceptable by making Tink do it. Um, we, we haven't really talked about um, how she has some of the best animation in this whole film. The scene, you know, I mean, I just love how she gets established as the HBIC, but the scene in the draw where Wendy's about to give Peter a kiss and she's just fighting that draw open with the scissors. That is one of the most brilliant sequences in all of animation. And um, the part where she tries to kill Wendy, I just love that animation of her flying towards the Lost Boys and some of the special effects where she gets mad and she's all red and she burns through a leaf. Or when they have her, you know, when Peter's trying to call her out and she goes to hide behind another leaf and she's just like, you know, tossing her head back and, and she goes into hiding and it's just so beautifully done. But I love everything about this character. Obviously, I thought enough to tattoo her on my body. I mean, she is, if you think about it, Tinkerbell has the most appearances of any Disney character, probably in any movie or, or uh, sorry, she has the most appearances in movies than any other character in the history of cinema because she basically starts every single Disney movie by flying over the castle. So the fact that they they took a character that is, you know, probably has, what would you say, the fourth or fifth most screen time uh, as a as a, like an embodied character in Peter Pan, and they make that one of their symbols of the company uh, is, is phenomenal and, and goes to show just what she means, not only to this movie, but also to just the franchise as a whole. Um, and, yeah. and to your point, her animation is just, it's is beautiful throughout this entire film. It speaks volumes 
that they wanted to make her one of the faces of the company. And this was something we talked about when we reviewed Pinocchio is that to me, Jiminy Cricket transcends that film. I forget Jiminy is from Pinocchio. I associate him more with the parks. And that was always Tinkerbell for me because she was part of every single opening because she flies out of the castle. I always tied her more to the parks. I mean, I, I love how, you know, she was always a standout character because of her sassiness, but it was always more about her representation in the parks that, that really did it. And I almost associate her with never growing up more than I do Peter. Let's move on and talk about the music here before today becomes tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> second star to the right is the song that opens the film. And it's it's an absolutely beautiful melody. The lyrics are incredible. And it's one of the um, few songs that I think we've ever discussed on this show that isn't its own musical number. That it is a song that really, it's the opening credits to the film. Mm. I think it does a wonderful job setting up exactly what we're about to see. I think that it does a really nice job, you know, hand in hand with the incredible animation with the wonderful uh, tiles and in the opening sequence that we see here and the paintings and the backdrops. It's everything about it is absolutely spectacular. I love the lyric, there's a Neverland waiting for you. Because if this story is going to be ambiguous, if you're not going to pick a side, if you're not going to determine whether it's real or not, just that idea of you have your own Neverland you just need to find it, I think is beautiful. It, it is beautiful. I think my, if, if I had to pick a gripe with it, I wish it were a children's choir that were singing this. It's a little yes. weird to me that it yeah. seems like it's, it's we're like baritone men singing, you know, it almost sounds like a, like a church song rather than like a, what you would think of as children singing about how to get to Neverland. Not just for the fantasy of it all, but for the overall themes. Why are, that's a, Wow. Luke, you just kind of blew my mind. I mean, that's that every time I hear it, I'm like, I wish, I wish that this were a children's choir. Now, having said that, lyrics, beautiful, melody, beautiful. I think it's, I think it's a great song. It just, you know, packaged very interestingly for what we're about to see. I agree, but I'm going to float a counterpoint out there. Does it carry more power because it's adults telling you basically to go find your Neverland? Because they're already past it. They've already grown up. Again, does it play into that metaphor of being an adult but not really wanting to be an adult? I think you're right. I, I think it would have sounded better if it were a child's choir, but I think that there is a sort of comfort in there in knowing that if, if the whole movie is a metaphor, and I think at this point we can kind of safely assume that it sort of is, that at least it's on brand with what they were trying to accomplish here. I'll take it one step further, Sean. Every time that I hear this, to 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 kind of circumvent my gripe, I always imagine that it's Walter Elias Disney singing me this song. That was a great volley, guys. Great points all around here. Wow. You Can Fly is the next song in the film. Uh, I said it before. This scene changed the world. Um. I think it changed cinema. And when I mean when I mean it changed the world, I think it changed cinema. I think that um it also because it has become so much a part of Disney parks, 
of which, you know, just in Central Florida alone, you're getting 80 million people a year visiting to go to these parks. That's just here. Not thinking about the original Disneyland, which changed the landscape of the theme parks, right? And now you've got Disneyland's all over the world. Hong Kong, Shanghai, Tokyo, Paris. And and so much of that is because of, we said, Tinkerbell and, and Peter Pan having attractions. And this song being so much a part of firework shows, parades. So you have... The, the entertainment element of filmmaking, you have the entertainment that is uh, travel and tourism. Th- this truly did change the world as we know it. And I don't think that they knew that they were changing the world when I did it. I think that they were just trying to tell a great story. But I would imagine that those nine old men, and this is the tragedy that is Walt Disney passing away as young as he did. The nine old men got to see what Walt Disney didn't get to see, and they carried the torch for him. They really did. Um, And I would imagine that they must have such, for the ones that are still here and and for the ones that are now gone, I think they must have had such an appreciation for what they accomplished and recognizing what this meant to the world. Yeah, this is one of those elements that embodies both movies and parks and just what the company is all about um it's an absolutely stunning sequence it's probably i mean i know we've praised the animation a lot um it probably is the best animation in the whole film the way that they do london and the flying sequences i mean i love the mermaid lagoon all the neverland stuff looks beautiful and there's some really fun character animation but if you're talking about backgrounds this is it and big ben is totally your money shot um to me this is more the this is my bigger grievance where there's not kids singing it or the kids singing it to Luke's point earlier. I mean, you get the kids saying we can fly, we can fly, we can fly, but like i I just would have liked to hear it all from from Peter and or from the kids um. I just didn't need that external chorus that we can't see. Or, I mean, if it's maybe a little too out of left field, but like if you were going to have a disembodied voice singing it, I would have rather it be Tinkerbell. I mean, she's not disembodied. She's right there. But this could have been the opportunity to give her a voice as an omniscient narrator and and narrating them over to Neverland. Yeah, I, I think so the, the the stage show largely stages it so that when they are flying to Neverland, the the chorus that picks up are the stars around them, kind of guiding them to Neverland. And I think I think something like that would be cool. You don't have to, you know, show the stars singing, but at least like, you know, they could glow to the music or whatnot to to show that. It always kind of weird, yeah, to me too, to your point that it it does have this choir that comes in. But the song is so iconic and I think that you know, regardless of who's singing it or whether they're singing it or not, the lyrics just really stick with you. Um, you know, uh, when there's a smile in your heart, there's no better type to start. It just is, it's it's always there. And it, it's, I think to me, it's one of those kind of like comfort food songs where you go back to it and you're like, oh, that's right. Okay, this is that Disney bubbly magic that I, that I absolutely love. The next song is A Pirate's Life. And it's a fun song, 
but it plays second fiddle for two reasons. Number one, it is immediately after you can fly. And number two, when you think about pirate songs for Walt Disney World, or for Walt Disney in general, you think Yoho, A Pirate's Life for Me, or in more recent history, you think about the Pirates of the Caribbean, the score for Pirates of the Caribbean. This is a great song. It's a lot of fun. And it's always, from from now until the end of time, it's always going to be a second or, or even a third fiddle. I think of the two songs that the Pirates sing, Captain Hook is far better, um, which we will talk about in, in a few moments. Um, I'm just surprised, and it wasn't until you said it just now, that they had two songs butt up against each other like that. I don't think there's any other film that does that actually. It, yeah. It's interesting that, that you go from sort of the hopeful, exciting, like, you know, hope springs eternal song to just kind of this mundane, Hey, we're singing this pirate thing that we probably sing every single day to get work done, you know? Uh, but I, I like that as the foil of like, you know, here's, here's our main characters. Here's really who we're following. Let me take you now and show you the other side. That's just sort of this ho-hum, we're going along our, our day's work and spitting knives at a door. I mean, it works, though. I don't think that you can set it up without having, like, some sort of pirate shanty song. For sure. Follow the leader. Following the leader, I should say. Next song. Uh, like I said, I remember it from being kind of wedged into a Disney sing-along tape that it didn't really necessarily belong in. But they made it work. Um, I think it's a classic song, but I do think that of all of the songs here, it's the, I mean, it's the second song that is no longer as timeless as the film is only because of the lyrics were off to fight the engines. Obviously you're not going to hear that anymore. Um, other than that, the song's a bop, right? It, it's, it's, it's an earworm. Everybody's grown up with it. And and even in that Disney sing-along tape, and I'm telling you, I think it was the Disneyland sing-along, that whole we're off to fight the engines, that comes out. And that was a tape from, like, 1988. Um, and obviously it had no place being in Disneyland because they were the whole idea was we're touring the park together and we're playing Following the Leader. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a classic song, um, and I think that the whole sequence is an awful lot of fun. I agree. Um, so catchy the lyrics don't hold at all but um overall it's a good sequence it's it's certainly not as egregious as the songs that we are about to talk about but um yeah this is one where i hope it doesn't get completely forgotten about over time or completely brushed away obviously i don't support you know the usage of the word, and especially because they do it with the accent, like it's, it's, it's really in poor taste. It was, it certainly is now. It was then too, um, but for what it does for Michael and John, and for exploring Neverland, I really hope that it doesn't get lost to time. Yeah, that that device to to show us Neverland and the different parts of it, I think it, it works really well. And you you've got to love some nonsensical lyrics, right? Some some words that aren't words. Tiddly do ti dum. Those types of things are always really fun to have in a song. And I think Disney, especially in this era of Disney, did a great job of kind of you know using non words to express a feeling or a thought or whatnot. 
And, uh, and this song does that really well. What makes the red man red? I mean, look, we don't, we don't have to say all of the things that are wrong about it, right? But let's talk about some of the things that I think they actually did fairly well here. I think, for better or for worse, you know, you had said it earlier, Luke, it is a catchy song, right? I think that they cleverly told a story, albeit with lyrics that, at this point, are completely insensitive. Um, I actually think that, other than the way that the Indians are drawn, I think the animation's actually really good. Uh, I think that the whole scene... When I say the scene works, I mean it works in harmony, animation, and music. I'm not implying that it's acceptable, but it is a strong scene. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't have too much more to add to that because how many different ways can we say that it is wrong? It it just is. Um, but... I like the idea of that. See, it even feels wrong just to say Indians because what we should be saying is, well, not even Native Americans, right? That's what we would say, but that that's not accurate in this case either. To make my point and try and keep it concise, um, I do agree with you, Sean, that there, there are not just things that the scene does well overall like the overall animation as far as the color palette and the artwork um i'm not saying the way the characters are drawn are are good no that's that's all wrong but um yes the dancing the way that it ties to the song that's all well done and i think that one of the successes of the song is that it's storytelling um, when you take out the chorus and how wrong the lyrics are, the verses about, you know, the lore and the legend that does play directly into Peter Pan and the overall themes. Um, so that's something, again, I, I agree with the warning label. I think you need it. I think that we do need to acknowledge everything that is wrong about it. But that is something, again, that I hope does not get lost to time is that um, I, I do like these little stories that they are telling. And I thought that that was kind of clever. And, and that is a, a fun part of an otherwise terrible song. Yeah, it's it's it is again. It's, it's unfortunate. It's just like the scene. It's, it's unfortunate that there is a, a great song like melodically wrapped up into something that we can't you know that 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 should not be tolerated anymore that that can't obviously be reproduced in any in really any way so it, it's one of those things it's a difficult kind of do you, do you do you separate just the music from the lyrics or, or whatnot overall you know that it's like the film would not be the same without the scene or without this song however I wish that there is a way that we could make it so it wasn't there, right? And it, it's just taking them out, taking that song out would would not advance the story in the way that it needs to. So I'm sure that there are other ways that it could have been done. Um, but in in terms of the the song itself, super catchy. Again, getting some some nonsense lyrics, 
uh, are, are always, you know, is always something that I think Disney does so well, just like in following the leader. So overall, um, it's one that I'll skip every single time if, it's, if I'm listening to the soundtrack, but I can't, I can't not say that it, it is a catchy song at the end of the day. Your Mother and Mine is the song that Wendy sings to the Lost Boys their last night in Neverland before her relationship with Peter, you know, temporarily hits its its roadblock. It's a nice song. It's melodically it's a beautiful song. The lyrics are very nice. I just wish that what they would have done here, which they did very well in Hook. Uh but actually and I think they did it better in Hook is that she's singing your mother and mine we mentioned before so it acknowledges that she has a mother she's acknowledging that the lost boys at one point had a mother but the lost boys don't acknowledge that they had a mother or that they are lost boys hook does that very well um and i wish that they would have played up on that a little bit more otherwise it's a nice song that i think for a multitude of reasons whether it be a song like You Can Fly or a controversial song like What Makes the Red Man Red. I think that this does kind of fall into the background. It's, and I think it's a forgotten about song. To me, unpopular opinion, uh, it's a pace killer in this film. I understand it needs to be a lullaby. I understand why tonally it is a slower song. But I feel like you could have still what what you're also losing is um, just that that joy that a lot of the other songs carry and and that upbeatness. Um, and I feel like you could have just injected a little bit more life into this song. You you can still have the sentiment. You can still have the lyrics. I'm not saying it's got to be a fast-paced bop, but I feel like this just kills the whole mood and it, it doesn't fit in with the rest of the film or the rest of the music. It's it's just such a shift, too much of a shift. Um, and, th- and that's really my only gripe with it otherwise um well no i do agree with what you said about the lost boys too because the pirates are all sobbing because they miss their mothers but you're you're right the lost boys don't acknowledge it so one 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 does i think uh cubby as named in, in the film says i i think i had a mother one time and then slightly says i once had a white rat and then yes. they're like oh that's not a mother right so what the, the interesting part in, in relation to the book is that the lost boys all the time are talking about how they have never had mothers except for curly who is renamed to cubby in the animated film and so curly is always making up these grandiose stories about how great his mother was uh and then at the end you find out that he too was just making that up he did he's never known they've never known their mothers so the first time that wendy mentions mother in uh in the book is the first time that they have ever heard of the concept of a mother other than what curly keeps making up about this woman who we who we knew you know who took care of him so uh i I think it's a really interesting kind of place in in the film to to your point kind of put railroad tracks on and hey we've been having fun we're kind of charging ahead oh let's stop and talk about mothers i think it's necessary for the story for michael and john to remember that's right I remember my mother, let's go home to her. However, is it, the, the song is, I, I don't think it's great. 
I will also skip this song, but just because I don't enjoy listening to it all that much. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't do really anything for me. Um, so it, it's the only part of, of the, the, the musical aspect that I would say just doesn't really work in terms of, of keeping the story afloat. It serves its purpose, but I kind of just want to, I would rather have Wendy explaining about their mother and talking about their mother rather than singing this song that then kind of like grounds things to a halt. The Elegant Captain Hook is the next and final song in the film. I think it's an all-time great villain song, and I think that it's all too forgotten about because of all the things I just mentioned. Uh, obviously, You Can Fly is the song that everybody takes away from this film. Uh, and I also think that because you just have other villain songs, whether it be Be Prepared or Poor Unfortunate Souls, that people just... they That tends to be what they think about Cruella DeVille, mm -hmm. right? Which is not actually sung by Cruella DeVille. There are just, there are so many villain songs that are revered that I think those kind of push this one far back in the recesses of everyone's mind. And I think that You Can Fly is what completely wipes this song from people's minds. And I, I it's a shame because I think it is uh, one of the best villain songs out there. I agree. Um, it's a forgotten classic. I think that has to do with it doesn't have the um, Disney villain green smoke. Ipso facto, this is just a race. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I do agree. It, it's it's totally a forgotten classic. Um, I think actually a lot of the songs now that we're talking through them are forgotten classics because now that we're going through, I'm like, dang, there are a lot more songs than I really remembered. Um I mean, like, I remember them all, obviously, but, like, it's just not top of mind what you think about. You think of You Can Fly, and, and that's pretty much it. Or I'll think of your mother and mine just because I know it's, like I said, a mood killer. Um, but anyway, one of the best villain songs of all time. It's catchy. It's upbeat. I mean, there's Dancing Pirates. What else do you need? But I love the way that they're speaking about Captain Hook. They are building him up they're talking about his rap reputation it's sort of reminiscent of Gaston except Gaston ends up singing about himself after LeFou picks him up um but I love the lyrics about Captain Hook and I also love uh you know how they're 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 striking a deal with the boys of, you know, if you don't sign up to join the crew, you're going to walk the plank. Uh, and then, you know, they wrap it up with a joke of, uh, if you sign up today, you'll get a free tattoo. I, it's hilarious. The whole thing is just great. Yeah. I, I love that. They just refer to him as elegant. That's one of my favorite things about this song is just that they, they, they can see that he is flamboyant and that he has these kind of characteristic attributes about himself uh, and, and singing about those and independently kind of, you know, mentioning some of those. Um, it, it's a great song. Uh, I, I would I would actually prefer Gaston to this, but only because I, I think that Gaston is so over the top and is a longer kind of set piece in, you know, within that that movie it takes place, you know, much earlier on in the film than this does. Um, so I almost would have liked to this to be like a reprise on the song and us have gotten the elegant Captain Hook as the intro song to Captain Hook. Yes. And then have this as like a, hey, you know, we're going to re-sing this song, but sing it about joining up rather than about how great our captain is, right? 
exactly. So, uh, that, that would be my only little little change or gripe with it, but I, I still think it's a it's a fantastic song. Final thought. We finally reached it. Final thoughts on Peter Pan, as is our tradition. We will let our guest go first. Well, I do want to give a, uh, a two special shout outs in the music category. One is uh, for the music you hear every time that TikTok Croc is on, uh, on the stage version. It's a song called Never Smile at a Crocodile. And it is fantastic, such an earworm. The second one is The Stinger. Uh, and so I'm gonna start actually my final thoughts by talking about The Stinger, just the <laughs> every single time that Peter yes. plays something. That three note kind of combination has become to me a, I don't know, kind of that 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 calling beacon of youth and of childhood and of, I hear it and I immediately kind of get giddy inside and I think, ooh, I may be going to Disney tomorrow. Like that is sort of the the thought that I get every time I hear that that feeling. And anytime that uh, the, the reason why I, I kind of have so much Peter Pan, you know, paraphernalia is because it is that embodiment of of childhood. Um, I I love this movie for what it meant to me when I was a child. I, I to be honest, I found it hard to watch this film this week, um, mainly because it didn't hold my attention as much as I thought it would. Um, I think it still holds up as a film other than the, uh, the, uh, the Indian scene in the middle. Um, but I, I found it just, I, I found it, I found myself wanting to watch it as a child and watching it as an adult just means so much different. Does that make sense? So to me, I would not call it a perfect film. I would call it a, a film that meant so much to me and was a perfect film in my childhood that now that I have grown up, ironically, has not quite hit that mark as an adult. That's like, get out of my head, man. Um, th that's exactly it. Um, I think it is a perfect story in that throughout, I, I mean, this is just me speaking about my own personal experience it has meant so many different things throughout each phase of my life. And I think even into adulthood, it will continue. I mean, into adulthood. I am very much into adulthood. I just celebrated a birthday. But, you know, as, as I grow older and I age, I think it's still going to continue to have different meanings. I think as a child, you're looking through it through one lens. So you're going to gravitate towards different thing. I think as an adolescent, it's you're going to pick up different things upon rewatch as an adult we are looking through it from a totally different lens and and things that we connected with as a child I totally agree it does sort of lose its spark a little bit and I think as we age even more we're going to see things differently I I think you know the way that we thought the croc was funny as a child we're going to look at it as an adult and really feel that tiktok a lot more the older we get. Um, so I think that story-wise, it's a timeless classic, no question about it, because there is something that you can identify with at any age. Um, and with that in mind, it grieves me to say it's not a perfect film. I want to say it is so much. For obvious reasons, it's not, because it just doesn't hold up, and there are things that are entirely inappropriate uh, they were then. We're just obviously calling them out now. Um, 
and it, it hurts to say that it's not perfect because I want it to be for everything that this represents in the parks and to this company. But that is where my love for the the characters in the story exceeds the love of the film itself. Um, I enjoyed it much more as a kid. That's not to say that I don't enjoy it now, but I completely agree with you, Luke. There's just something that doesn't translate as an adult. And, and I guess maybe that's what we're supposed to take away from it is that we are grown now. And, you know, that's not to say that we can't hold on to our childhood, but maybe much like Peter Pan, this is not supposed to grow with us. So before I give my final thought, I do have to ask you, Luke, you had warned me last night that you had a smoldering hot take. Uh, is your hot take that you did not give this film a perfect score or is there something else? It is a yes and. So that is not quite my hot take. Spill it that is, tea. It is part of it. Uh, my my hottest of hot takes, which which may not be that hot after hearing this review, is that there are three other derivatives of Peter Pan that I would rather put on than this. If I had to choose, you have to put on a derivative of Peter Pan. There are three that I would choose before I would choose the original animated version. Which, before this week started, I would have said you would have thought was crazy, but I have watched a lot of different iterations of Peter Pan. And I think the, the hottest of, scold, of scolding hot takes is that the new live action is one of those. Wow. wow. I did not I see it. that coming. I loved it. I loved it. I'm very happy for you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I absolutely loved it. So I will save your review for next week, but I'm going to put my two cents in uh, that it, it was it. I, I loved it. I would 100% put it on before this animated version. Wow. So my my thing is, I'm interested to see if my opinion of it changes because we're going to review it next week. And I will just tell you, upon first watch, I couldn't stand it. Um, now, we I also, also weren't like fully immersed the way we are now. I think it's going to be a lot different watching it smack up against this. Maybe, maybe not. The, the movie, the one movie that I absolutely hated upon first watch to the point where we finished it the first time we watched it and I said this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen and when we we watched it the like two or three days later to take notes to record it for the show that all of a sudden I saw the brilliance of it was Mars Needs Moms yeah I hated Mars Needs Moms the first viewing 48 hours later I watched it the second time and I went no this this movie's absolutely brilliant and like characters that I thought I couldn't stand I now love. love I love Gribble I hated him the first time we saw that movie so I'm and for me um Don't Look Under the Bed was the same thing I know you still don't care for that movie but I had the same effect didn't like it the first time grew to love it the second time so I'm interested to see if uh if my feelings of Peter Pan and Wendy change upon the second viewing I think I hope so my I have some stances on it that I may soften. I think that the things I'm hard and fast on, I'm going to stay hard and fast on. Um, and I think the other thing is that ultimately, amongst the three, we'll put this in that category, Peter Pan and Wendy, and Hook. Hook is still, to me, my favorite. 
100%. I, I think Hook, for a movie that was critically panned, for a movie that Steven Spielberg does not even like, and he directed it, I think of the three, it's the best one. But with that being said, I'm going to take a stance that putting aside what is culturally wrong and inappropriate about this film, you know, in regards to how the Indians are depicted, I actually think this is a perfect movie. Which, for some people, I think you're, you're going to sit there and say, well, how can it be a perfect movie when you have these horrible depictions? And there is, a, there is a lot of validity in that. But I think that if you want to include those depictions in here, I think that there is a learning lesson. I think there's a learning lesson in tolerance. I think there's a learning lesson in history, which is why I, I have said at nauseum on the show, you cannot edit history. We should not edit history because if you do, history is deemed and doomed to repeat itself. I think that we need to observe why things are no longer okay, and I think you learn from them. I think that there's nothing more valuable in this world than an, edu than an education. And when you take away the opportunity to educate people, you're, you're no longer left with that. And I think that that's the most invaluable thing. With that being said, I think that what is incredible about this film is that it transcends generations. Take away what's inappropriate about it. As a child, you want to go to Neverland, and you want to play games, and you want to fly with Peter Pan, and you want to have an adventure like, you know, fighting a Captain Hook, or like kids played as kids. Again, whether the term's appropriate or not, kids played cowboys and Indians, right? And, and, and to the point where they, they tell you in this film, it's a game. We're going to release each other until Tiger Lily gets uh, captured. Until right? they took it too far, yeah. Right. So uh, I think that there's an, there's an element of innocence. There's an element of play. There's an element of childishness that a six or seven-year-old will connect to. I think that as you hit those teenage years, those kind of Disney abyss years, I think that's where maybe there's a disconnect. I love that phrase. It's the Disney abyss years so is true. what I'm going to call it, it moving so forward. I think as an adult, this film hits so differently. I, I said it before. As a kid, I watched it and I enjoyed it. I never would have told you it was one of my favorite Disney films. And I am not afraid to admit that when I sat and watched this to take notes, you know, I actually got choked up watching this movie because as an adult, a lot of the elements hit you differently. I said it before, the jealousness and the enviness or the enviousness of, you know, uh, of, of being a child, the frustration of wishing your childhood away and having so many warnings not to do it and yet you did it anyway and now all you want is to recapture that. It, it's why I am so happy that we live as close to Walt Disney World as we do. It's why I'm I'm always going to carry that little plastic pass. That's my little pixie dust. That's my plastic pixie dust in my pocket is that we can go to the parks when we want. And I, I don't take that for granted. Maybe don't say that you're going to bring pixie dust into the parks. That's going to take on an entirely different meaning. And I don't want you to get stopped by security. I'm just saying there's, there is an element there where I have chosen to take that to the next level and, and, and never take for granted how fortunate we are to be able to do that. But also being cognizant of, I am going to lose that race against time. We all are. 
it's very relatable. Um, I, I think that this movie transcends generations, and I think that there's really something there for everybody. And in in a you know melancholy sort of way, it hits differently as an adult. But I think that's what makes the movie so good. Um, yeah, all the other stuff aside, I actually do believe that it's a perfect film. The hill that I will die on is that there is no reason for this attraction to have a two-hour wait at the Magic Kingdom. There is absolutely no reason why this attraction has the wait times that it does. As much as I love the film and love it more now than I did as a kid, um, I, I still think that the attraction is overrated. I would agree. While not perfect, it still is a great adaptation, and it is a Disney classic. It deserves a better ride, but wow, this is not where I thought we were going to land. I completely, completely agree. Did not think that this is where we were going to land. Now I, I will, I will say a lot of what Sean said resonates with me a lot differently when I think about the totality of yeah. the story. Right. And so I, I completely agree with you, Sean, that, that these concepts, these themes that keep kind of showing up are incredibly relatable and do really can choke you up thinking about childhood, thinking about adulthood uh, and kind of the transition from one to the other and the, the death of one to bring on another, right? Absolutely very relatable. When it comes to this 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 movie, however, I, I think that the way that it is drawn, packaged is beautiful, um, but for whatever reason, as an adult, it does not, uh, it just doesn't resonate as, as much as it did when I was a kid. Um, another hot take for you on Peter Pan's flight, I think the queue is better than the attraction itself. I would agree. Yeah, no, I would I would totally agree with that. Uh, no, I agree with everything that you said. I It's not that I like the story any less. It's not that I like the film any less. I just, I'm wondering if that has to do, Luke, with you and I growing up on it the way that we did and you didn't quite have that same, you know, like you didn't rewatch it a lot. You didn't hold it as close to you, I think, as we did in our childhood. And I think that that's why... I don't know. Maybe I feel closer to the stories in to the story in some ways because it's about growing up and and maybe that's it. Like maybe we were supposed to sort of let it go at a certain age. Um, but yeah, I mean, the story, it's that is perfection. That won't change. Um, but yeah, this film just didn't carry that same magic that it did. So it's. It's how, like, I didn't watch Boy Meets World as a kid. When it was on television, when it was one of the biggest shows on television, never watched it. I didn't watch it until I watched it with you in my mid-20s. And we got through that rewatch, and you had said that there were elements of it, you still loved it, but maybe some elements that didn't necessarily hold up for you. And I said, oh, hell no, I, I, can, I watched it once or twice as a kid, didn't like it. And I said, I am glad I waited until I was an adult to watch it because I'm watching it through the eyes of me as a 10-year-old, as a 13-year-old, where I think I can appreciate a connection with these characters more. And now I'm looking at it through the eyes of the Matthews' parents, even though I don't have a child of my own. Um, and, and I still have such an appreciation for that that I think Boy Meets World is a better show as an adult than it, is, than, than it would have been for me as a child. My biggest surprise is here we are now, Nearly four hours later, I'm Pan and both of you are Hook. That is incredible to me. <laughs> Luke started this episode with the Pan hat on, and I now understand why you took it off. He's got a mug. He's got a tumbler. He, he came to party today, but you're right. 
Now, now I feel just like Hook. Peter, you've become a pirate. But you know what? At the end of the day, Pockets at some point will come up to me and say, oh, there you are, Peter. Yes. You'll come back. Eventually, we'll. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and I'm not I'm not saying my view has completely changed. It's not that I like the movie any less. I think it's just also some of the things that we were we were talking about or just some things that I notice now, like film and story-wise, again, forget all the obvious cultural problems. There were things that were just problematic with it from a story stance that I never noticed before and I would have never noticed as a child. So that's where I'm just like okay, I did have rose-colored glasses on, but now that they're off, it's it's not as perfect as I once thought it was. That's the spark that I'm losing. Not any of the, you know, maybe, maybe saying some of the magic is lost was a poor choice of words because that's not it. The magic is not lost. I'm just being a lot more critical of it. Well, Luke, thank you so much for joining us and for being so patient in waiting nearly five years to come on and discuss... Peter Pan. Uh, it obviously is not the first time that you've joined us on Monorail Radio, and it certainly will not be the last time. I can promise you that. Maybe we won't go four hours next time, but uh, I know that I we you will be joining us again. Well, I just want to say thank you both. I, I absolutely love Peter Pan, and and I love you both so much for inviting me on. I just think it it you know it is one of the things that um, in my life has meant so much to me. Uh, as a character, as a story, you two mean a whole lot to me as well. And I'm so glad to say that you, uh, I, I set a new record in length of podcasts, I believe. So um, I'm glad to be a part of that as well. Cannot wait for the next one. Thank you all so much for sticking with us. Uh, if in, you with are this still episode. with us, we do have a giveaway coming up. Yes, I don't we, want to forget about that. No, I have it written down. We have a very, very cool Peter Pan themed giveaway. More on that in just a moment, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip, just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly check for discounts to make sure we are guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you are in need of some pixie dust, if you would like to see Tinkerbell herself flying out of the castle, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. Don't forget, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout to see all of Kelly's work. It's online at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. 
we've got some news this week that uh, I'm happy, but I'm kind of like just shaking my head a little bit because if you have listened to us discuss our experiences at a as annual pass holders, specifically on our Dockside chats, when we talk about Walt Disney World versus Universal Studios, where we're also pass holders, we have often said that Universal tends to give us an awful lot for our money. Right, like the pass holder lounge, uh, special viewing areas during parades. And we've said, you know, with, with Disney and they weren't giving quite as much because there are a lot of places you can't even use our dining discount anymore. Right. So I'm happy with some of the news that came out, but there's a part of me jaded, admittedly, that's sort of shaking my head going, what the hell took so long? Disney has announced, first off, they announced that we're getting a new magnet, a new pass holder magnet. This is always a big deal when these come out. Mm-hmm. And if you read through the tea leaves, they tell us, to use our imagination and see what sparks. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, And they're going to be available at Epcot. Hmm. I wonder who we're getting. Um, Suffice to say, we've all basically figured out at this point that we are going to get a figment figment uh, magnet, which I'm very excited about. I am too, but, you know, I I, kind of see where you're going with this. The theme being that Disney's late to the party. Epcot 40 started last year. I think that would have been an appropriate time for a figment magnet. I mean, the Dumbo ones were nice, but we could have gotten Dumbo now. I'm not sure, to your point, why they didn't launch the figment ones in conjunction with the 40th. And Dumbo would have been more fitting for Disney 100 because that was a Walt-era film. But what do we know? Uh, They've also, though, announced that we're getting Passholder Appreciation Days, Mm -hmm. which is... Um, it's it's great. Uh, I'll be excited to see what they do. My understanding is that they're going to bump the pass holder discounts on that on those days, and there's going to be uh, special offerings, more food for the pass holders, uh, special items that you can only get as a pass holder, advanced sales for certain events like Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween Party, where we're getting a discount on that, ten bucks. I think it's going to be. My point in all of this is. Disney hasn't done this for quite some time, these sort of like pass holder appreciation events, because for a long time, pass holders didn't really feel appreciated. Right. And that has nothing to do with pandemic times. This was going on for a while. But they're finally catching up. How is it sad to say they're finally catching up with Universal? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth and sound unappreciative, but Appreciative is the operative word here. And yeah, they should have done this a while ago. I'm happy that they're doing it. I'll be excited to see what these amenities are, what these, you know, what the lounge is. I wonder if they're going to do one in each park. That I'm not sure of. But I didn't think I'd be living in a world where I would say Disney is finally catching up with Universal. My guess is that they're going to soft launch in one park and then... You know, if it's something that's being utilized, if they can sell enough exclusive pass holder merch or beverage in there, then they will probably do it in all four. Yeah. 
We also got a new Haunted Mansion trailer today. We got our first look um, of Jamie Lee Curtis the other day. I think Entertainment Weekly put that out. Yes, as Madame Leota. Well, we had seen Jamie Lee Curtis in human form, but now we got to see her in the actual globe as the floating head, as we know her. Yeah, but with every bit of sneak peek that we continue to get... I'm more and more excited for this movie that we only have to wait really two more months for. Uh, I'll I'll die on the hill where I don't know why this isn't coming out closer to Halloween, but at the same time, I'm glad that I only have to wait two more months. It could be the Hocus Pocus phenomenon, just a summer blockbuster. And well, that's exactly it, as I'm saying it. They want to capitalize on the summer blockbuster and then it's going to get a second life. They'll have it on Disney Plus by Halloween. Um, We also got a closer look at the Hatbox Ghost in this trailer. We did see a little snippet in the first one, but we got a really good look at him this time around. Um, And what I'm also really liking is that they're they're going for it. We some we see some characters getting possessed. This is going to be a pretty dark movie, and I am here for it. Well, by the time it is released on Disney Plus. There is a chance that Disney Plus will be Hulu, or Hulu will be Disney Plus. I'm not exactly sure. All that we know for certain is that the apps are being merged, and I'm not really sure what to make of that at this point. I have a lot of thoughts on it. A lot. But we have kept our listeners long enough on this episode. Thank you very much for sticking with us, and we are going to get much more in-depth on that topic, as well as... Much more streaming news, yep. writer strike news. We have a lot of hot topics that we're going to be, be breaking down in our next Dockside chat, which is coming up soon. Yeah, coming up in just a couple of days. But you have stuck around with us long enough, but we want you to stick around for just another moment because we want to reward you for sticking with us for, my God, four hours now. We have a killer prize pack for Peter Pan. This is going to be available for those who are following us on social media. It is going to be a social media giveaway. But on on all platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Yes. We have a monorail radio t-shirt. As always. As always, in the size of your choice. We have Peter Pan, the anniversary edition, on Blu-ray, DVD combo pack, and there is a digital code as well. And we have its sequel, Return to Neverland. Also, a Blu-ray DVD combo pack with a digital code. We're going to snap a photo of that with the t-shirt. We're going to share that on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Make sure that you are liking the page, that you like the post, and that you tag a friend. And do it on all three. Get three chances to win. You're going to have until Monday, May 22nd at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That week's episode, when we review Peter Pan and Wendy, we will announce the winner, okay? So just make sure that you are following us on that social media. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. I just gave you all that social media. We are on TikTok as well at Monoreal Radio. Be sure to like and subscribe to us. Rate us as well on your podcast platform of choice. This episode especially, for Luke alone, 
Yeah. We, we got to give it up for Luke. Thank you again, Luke. Yeah, Luke was great. And even Walt is giving it up for Luke. <laughs> and for links to everything related to the show, he is going stir crazy. We've kept him long enough. For everything related to the show, it's online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs>